Amen. Well, when Josh is not here and we have the kind of more stripped down version of our worship team, uh, it's kind of nice. I feel like I can move. I've got a little extra space. There's no pedals. There's no drum kits. Kind of feels like a campfire vibe. I was saying in the first service, except here at this campfire, you're excited when somebody pulls out a guitar. I don't know if you've been around campfires where people pull out a guitars. It's kind of the most bummer moment of the campfire. But when Eduardo's playing, I'm in. Uh, glad you're with us. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, one of the Gospels in the New Testament, another story about Jesus and resurrection. If you look, we've still got Easter up, and that's because Easter is not really like a one-Sunday subject. The concept of the resurrection is way, way bigger than just one Sunday and something we need to take more time on. I was referencing, let's see if I can find it really quickly. I read recently that on this topic of the resurrection, there's a great Christian theologian, a Presbyterian guy named Charles Hodge, and he wrote in his kind of giant systematic theology that he wrote. He wrote 127 pages on the cross. Now, that would take a long time to read. It takes a long time to read 127 pages of, like, cartoons. But 127 pages of Christian theology from Charles Hodge is dense. And yet, he only wrote four on the resurrection. And you could kind of like, you know, shake your head and wag your finger at old Charles Hodge because you're so much more godly than he is. Or you can realize that as a Christian church, honestly, we've kind of missed the boat. We have not given the appropriate weight to the fact, not just that Jesus came and died, but also that he was raised and what that means. Most of the time, it's just the end of the story about the cross. But the, the scriptures give it a much deeper relevance. And, and so rather than just thinking about it on Easter, we're actually going to extend this topic on the resurrection for another three weeks and think about what God's done for us. So, so let's begin here in Luke chapter 8, and this is verses 40 to 56. It's a longer passage, but you have to understand all the stuff around where Jesus says, and the, the one thing we're going to focus on, Jesus says, do not fear only believe. So he's, he's giving an antidote to fear, but he's giving it based on this concept of the resurrection. So let's see it. We're going to read it, but keep yourself laser focused on that phrase. Don't fear. Believe. Let's read it. Luke chapter 8, starting verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. They're all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people passed around him. Uh, I'm sorry, pressed around him. And there was a woman who had, a discharge of, had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? Everyone around denied it, and then Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounding you are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, 
for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling forward and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, how she had been immediately healed. And then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, somebody from the ruler's house came and said to Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered Jairus and said, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And the mourning turned to laughter as they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But Jesus, taking her by the hand, called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Long story. Stories interweaving in stories. But the thing that we're going to focus on is the way the resurrection impacts people. The way the resurrection impacts the daily life of a Jesus follower. The way the resurrection specifically impacts fear. I don't know if you've been hiking much. It's Utah. Everybody goes hiking all the time. And now that the snow is slowly kind of receding up the canyons a little bit and you can get back up into them, you can get back in the trees and breathe that air again. When we go hiking, I love to see the trees and see the, the kind of solidity of a tree. When you're hiking and moving up and down rocks and maybe something's a little icy or whatever and you can put your hand on a tree, you know that that tree's not going anywhere. And yet, when you get out in the woods, you see some that have fallen. And it's a weird feeling. It's a weird sort of moment. I mean, you can just sort of take it in as part of the landscape and keep moving. But if you stop and ask the question, what happened? I don't know. There's a little more to it. What is it that this giant thing, this solid thing, if you hit it with a car, the car would lose and the tree would win. How did this thing on its own just fall? And there are a lot of different reasons. I mean, a tree is a living thing, and every living thing has a life cycle. I mean, sequoias live a million years, but eventually they won't continue living. And most trees have that same sort of a life cycle. At some point they stop living and they do fall, but there are other things that can be wrong with a tree. You can have all kinds of problems on the inside of a tree, and though the outside appears very solid, the inside is rotting away. One of the things you can do with your house, with the trees that maybe are on your property, is look down. And if you see mushrooms around your tree, it means that even if the tree looks healthy, that root system is actually decomposing. There's a problem beneath the surface. There's something on the inside that's eating out the life of that tree. And I bring it up because I'm trying to think through the way to describe long-term fear on a person. Long-term anxiety in the life of a person. 
See, the scripture constantly talks about us as trees. It's a little weird to think that way, but then once you let yourself kind of step into the poetry of it, it's actually really beautiful. In Psalm 1, it talks about us being trees planted by streams of living water. You see, Israel is painted by Isaiah as this massive tree putting out giant branches that provide shade and life for all these birds and all this fruit for the world to come to. And yet... As we fall in our sin, that tree is not what it's supposed to be. It is like a tree eaten out from the inside. We see people that look great, look solid, seem like people you can really trust. And then you get the call that their whole life has just fallen. Why? What is it that would make us into things that really do grow deep roots, that actually become strong, solid, dependable? Here's what Jesus is saying right here. Do not fear, only believe. I want you to feel the fear first, and then we'll kind of understand how we get rid of it. This Jairus guy has got a daughter, and it's really his only daughter. And the daughter is not just sick. He knows that she is dying. When you feel fear, it's because you're feeling some sort of a threat to something that you care about, something that you are, something that you care about. This guy had to be feeling an incredible amount of fear even before he gets the message about the daughter. He goes to Jesus, and he's got to be feeling fear because it says that she is his only daughter. Now, in this culture, your children were a big deal. It was how you passed on your property, not just an inheritance, but actually your name, the the way that your sort of honor, your personhood existed was through these generations that come after you. And for this guy, who's a ruler of the synagogue, would have been a very Jewish Jew, saw his only daughter. Well, you can just imagine that his hopes are based on this one little girl. And then now, here this thing that he has got all his hopes on is under threat is going to die unless Jesus does something. Uh, Rachel and I get these emails from St. Jude's, which is a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where then people don't pay for care. They just are there to help end childhood cancer. And we get these emails, and they're filled with hope. I mean, they're not supposed to just bum you out. They're, they're filled with hope. But when you open it up, I mean, it's got a picture of a patient. It's a weekly patient spotlight. And the one for this morning was a seven-year-old with a brain tumor. I have a seven-year-old. Can you imagine the parent's fear? Maybe you're not somebody who has kids. You're not having young kids. I mean, everybody worries about their kids all the time. But, but for you, it's something different. It's, it's something that you have placed who you are on, your hopes on. And death has become this threat. You have this loss of hope. You have this dwindling amount of time to find a solution. This guy, Jairus, is trying to find Jesus because he knows that this Jesus is someone who could possibly help. He's not sure that he can help. He's certainly not sure that he will help, but it's a possibility. And when your kid's dying, you'll do whatever it takes. You see this guy come up to Jesus, begging him to come and to heal his daughter. And then to be 
sort of put into a vice by this situation of a lady coming up and trying to be healed by Jesus by just touching the fringe of his garment and Jesus stopping everything to have this investigation and then to have this lengthy conversation with this lady. While all this is going on, it doesn't say what Jairus is doing or thinking, but we can kind of imagine. You have to know that in his heart he's saying, who cares? She's fine. I'll help pay for more doctors afterward. Please, right now, we have to go. But he can't say that because Jesus is the one making the big deal out of it, and he needs Jesus to be the one to come and heal his daughter. So he's got his incredible fear for the daughter, but he's also got this fear that he might lose his one shot with this Jesus cat if he interrupts. That Jesus won't help that they'll be out of time, that Jesus can't help. Psalm 22 starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now, if you've been around the church for any number of years, those verses have been made very famous because in the New Testament, when Jesus dies on the cross, he actually says that from the cross. But this psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus quotes it from the cross. This sentiment was written because humanity experiences this sentiment all the time. It's possible that Jairus could have even been praying this as he's waiting, as he's hoping. We've all felt forsaken like this. That's what the fear creates. It creates this darkness. It creates this smallness. It creates this loneliness. And yet, Jesus says, believe. Somebody comes up and tells him, listen, it's not only close to too late, it is too late. She's actually all the way really right now dead. And Jesus steps into that moment. When he hears that his daughter is dead. I imagine it like those war movies where the bomb goes off and you have it from the perspective of somebody who was next to but survived the bomb blow. And then the, they're like blurry, but then it kind of comes into focus and the sound, all the war noise just cuts out and you hear the wee tinnitus kind of noise. And there's dust and there's picture, but it's blurry in the sound. And they're trying to show you what it feels like to feel shock. Imagine what Jairus felt when that person stopped him and said, no, let Jesus go. It's, it's over. She's dead. It's like he just steps off a cliff at that moment. Shock. And yet Jesus gets right in his face and says, do not have fear, only believe. He's giving Jairus in that moment a hope, a reason to believe. Now, if you've walked with Jairus to this point, if you're feeling your own fear as you're thinking about Jairus feeling his fear, you may be jealous of Jairus because in that moment, Jesus himself looks into his eyes and says, don't fear, believe. And you're thinking, wouldn't that be nice if Jesus could say that to me in my situation? Well, let me tell you, you've actually got a much better position than Jairus did because... What Jairus was able to believe in in that moment was just whatever he knew or happened to believe about this Jesus. 
He doesn't seem to have the same level of faith as the centurion who had a similar circumstance and yet stopped the guy from Jesus from coming into his house and said, listen, I know about authority and I know about your authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So he believes something about Jesus, but not as much as the centurion. He believes something about Jesus, but he was a synagogue leader. These guys were not friendly towards Christ. The Jewish establishment, when Jesus comes, tends to be anti-Jesus. Irony of ironies. He knows something about him. He knows that he's a healer. He thinks that this might be a way for his daughter to be saved. And yet, for us, we are able to look at Jesus and we're able to see him through. Not only the fullness of his ministry, but the culmination of his ministry in the cross. And then... The unbelievable, mind-bending experience of knowing that he's been resurrected. That's what it says in Ephesians. Now, if you ever read Ephesians and just look for periods, like how many sentences are there? There's like three in the whole book because everything is just these unimaginably long sentences. And it makes it really difficult to quote in sermons because you always feel like you're just quoting something and people don't know what came before or after. So forgive me. But here's what it says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's saying that the way that we know that God has unimaginably immeasurably great power and that he is willing to use that power toward us who believe the greatness of his might is expressed in the resurrection. That means that if we want to experience God in all of his grandeur, if we want to have the ability that Jairus lacked to believe that God could actually do something even in his hopeless situation. We have to see it by understanding the resurrection. There's a time in the Old Testament where Joshua is leading the people of Israel in this battle. Battle's going well, but they're running out of time. And so they pray that God would just keep the sun there for a minute and let them finish what they're doing. That seems like a bigger miracle to us than the resurrection. I mean, you think about what it would be for God to make the sun stop. It's not like the sun is just on a record or something and he just puts his finger on it to stop it for a moment. We know that the sun is a star in the middle of our solar system. And that all these things are spinning and rotating, that the earth itself is rotating and rotating around the sun. And that all of the ways that these things pull and push and the gravity and whatnot so that the solar system continues to work as it's supposed to, had to, in that moment, by God, be paused. Imagine the unimaginable power of a God who can take all of that momentum that's been going on since the beginning of the creation and just pause it. And then, when everything's cool and he's ready again, to just allow it to continue. That's a big miracle. But in the resurrection, what's happening is not merely that God's telling somebody who was dead, hey, you can get back up. In Jesus' resurrection, he's actually saying that the, the unimaginable momentum 
from the fall of Adam and Eve until that point, the death of all humanity that has been coming ever since, all the time from when the, the actual fall takes place, our sin and the death that, re- that results from it, that's been happening with every person and every family and every nation and every generation from then all the way until the time of Christ, that all of that momentum, all of that death has been coming and coming and coming and coming. And yet at the point of Jesus... God takes that momentum and actually throws it back the other way. It's not merely that he just said, hey, wake up. Now you see me. Now you don't. And it's an illusion. It's a trick. It's some impressive magician's trick. No. He's actually capturing the momentum of all things down towards dissolution, towards a breaking up, and throws them the other direction towards a completeness, a putting back together, a perfection. We talk about in the new creation that what's called the second law of thermodynamics will be reversed. You ever hear a preacher talk to you about the second law of thermodynamics? It's because they read apologetics, not because they read physics. And you can test by saying, so what's the first law? And they'll be like, so listen, hey, the second law of thermo, you know, because we have no idea. But the second law is about how all things are trending towards dissolution. And yet, in this moment, at the resurrection, God declares, proves, begins his massive work of taking and moving that momentum the other way. Can we believe that Christ could actually save us, heal us, protect our hope? Well, if we see the resurrection, yes. Jairus has got to be asking these questions. He's saying, can Jesus do anything? Well, if he had seen the resurrection, then certainly he would that much more be able to say, yes, Jesus can heal my unspeakably difficult situation. But can he is not the only question. You also have to ask the question of will he? See, if you're brand new to Christianity, you you have the question, can he? Can God do this? You don't know God yet. You're still asking who this God is. So, of course, you don't know if he can or can't. Well, let's talk through it. But if you've been in Christianity for a minute, then you've probably had to start asking the question, not just can God help me, but will he help me? And that comes from guilt. Well, yeah, of course he can. Bill Gates has got all the money in the world. Of course he could, but he's not going to use that for me. Why would God help me? I know he's very loving, but surely he he doesn't want to help me when I've done what I've done. You know, Jairus has got to have these same sort of thoughts. Would he do this for me? And I think right in the middle of this passage, part of the reason that we're told this story about the woman is because it helps to address this question. The reason we're told about the woman is because that's how it happened. He was going one way. This healing took place. Everybody's kind of freaking out because the big important man, Jairus, is having to get sort of sidelined while Jesus talks to the very low and unimportant sick lady. These aren't our categories. They're theirs. But I'm saying 
And he does, heals her, and then continues. It actually did happen. That's why we're told that. But we're knowing from this that God does love us. Look at the way that Jesus cared for this woman. In the middle of this press to go and to help, to save the the daughter of the leader of the synagogue, he stops everything to help. She'd already been healed, but, but to speak to, to bless this woman who would have been ceremonially unclean, who would have been penniless and probably rejected by the culture. And he does it because he loves her. That's what he says. When he he looks at this woman, he says to her in verse 48 of Luke 8, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus looks at her and he says, Daughter. You have to understand the character of this. This is how God relates to you. He's not here as some sort of cosmic judge only. And his only job is to just hand out the justice that you deserve. He looks at this lady who doesn't deserve anything from him and yet receives not only healing, not only cleansing, but the name daughter. To speak that word to her means that he loves her. He's giving her a title that gives her a whole new identity that brings her into his his relationships at a level way more intimate, way more close than anybody has a reason to ever expect. The love that he's talking about here has to get down in you, has to change you fully. Again, in Ephesians, as he's thinking about all this stuff, Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying for his people. Paul's praying for these Ephesians. I'm praying for you. We have to know that this love that God has for you can get in you, can root you down, can ground you down, so that you go from being the tree that is falling to the tree that cannot fall. It's part of what's so crazy to me when you see a tree falling is that if you see a healthy tree, there's nothing that can move it. You can cut it down and you think, yeah, chainsaws. Have you ever tried to use one? You rent one from Home Depot. They're getting stuck all the time and maybe it's just me and they've got junky chainsaws at Home Depot. They're not easy to get rid of. You call a tree trimming service. It's very expensive. They're difficult to remove. And if you try to remove it by just running into it, you lose. That's happening because when it's rooted all the way down, you can't move it. He's saying about us that our hearts, through faith, will be rooted and grounded in Him, trusting in His love. See, when we come for healing, we're not coming to a principle. Yeah, it's just a fact of the universe that if you bring your goodness, he's going to give you blessings. Hey, if you bring your faith, because you've got such great faith, you will be healed. Ipso facto, if you are not healed, well, you probably didn't have enough faith. Jesus is not somebody you come to and evaluate as a machine or as a process. He is a 
person. And he is a person who loves you. Oh, put away your doubt. Why this fear and unbelief? Put away your doubt. He loves you. He proves it. He proved it with his death on the cross. He's proving it with the resurrection. And it's always been God's character of love towards us. It says in Psalm 103, again written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Then it lists the benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. If you are staying away from him because of guilt and shame, he will forgive your iniquity. He's not going to celebrate it. He's not going to tolerate it, but he will forgive it. That he heals your diseases that may not be in this life. Jairus' daughter grew up and died again. At some point, all will be made well. But it is in his heart, it is in his love to heal all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. I don't know, that's imagery that's powerful, but it's way more if you realize it's talking about being a slave, being a prisoner, and to have him come and to draw you up out of your slavery, to draw you up out of your prison, to pay what's needed for you to be allowed to go free, and not only to redeem your life from the pit, but then to crown you with Love that never moves, steadfast love and mercy. That's exactly what we talked about with that prodigal God picture. He comes back and he's all filthy and whatever, and the father hugs him. Why? How? Oh my gosh. But not only does he redeem him, not only does he hug him, he crowns him. He puts the new robe on him. He puts the new ring on his finger. He, he takes him back and he gives him not only the name, but the comfort, the love, the crown to satisfy you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. <laughs> Imagine Jairus at the end of the story. High level of grief of, an, of, of, of fear and anxiety then it spikes when whoever it is came and told him that Jairus is, uh, that his daughter is all the way dead. Don't mess with the teacher anymore. That fear spikes. And then Jesus takes him and raises his daughter from the dead. Imagine what he feels after that. <laughs> when Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to need to feed her. You've got to give her something to eat here. She's awake. She's alive. I told you she's coming back. She's awake. Can you please get a Pop-Tart or something? like? He's trying to get them moving again. And you have to imagine that mom and dad just have their mouths hanging open. Feeling the joy, feeling his youth renewed like the eagles. If you believe, if you receive this goodness from him, you have life. You have life. So, if you are, if you're somebody who's brand new to Hope Church, brand new to Christianity, praise God. Let us talk to you about this Jesus. Let us fill in the categories about whatever is going on here. But be attracted by this kind of love, by this kind of power. If you're somebody who's been a Christian for a minute, wake up. Put your fear away. Put your eyes up 
on this resurrected Christ and know that all of that might and all of that immeasurable greatness is there out of his love for you. If you can't believe this because you keep sinning and so you keep saying to yourself, well, how could he love me? How could he trust me and and forgive me again? He will. Also, stop it. Put that sin away. Repent. If he seems super distant to you, because these things are true and you hear them and they kind of bounce around in your head, but, but you're not really part of the church. And so nobody in your life is speaking these things to you and telling you these things that are true. Come back. Come back again next week and the next week and the next week. Jump in on some of these community groups and be ready for when we relaunch the other version of community groups. the big thing I'm asking you to do is just to receive. Receive the incredible life of somebody who doesn't fear. Not because you're insane, but because you actually believe in a God who loves you and has the power to protect you. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would take these words and write them on our hearts. Write them on the back of our eyelids, Lord. Let us think about them when we wake up and when we go to sleep. Let us teach these things to our children so that we actually do become a community who who accesses the fullness of the wealth you've given us in Christ, that we begin to explore the height and the depth, the width and the breadth, Lord, the length of your love for us, being rooted and grounded in that love, Lord, that your name would be glorified and that your church would spread. Pray these things for your son's holy name. Amen.